Ever thought about how scientists measure sea ice thickness without a giant drill and meter ruler? Or how to spy on Antarctic seals from space? Then you'll particularly love this one, because we are joined by two remote sensing specialists, Dr. Wolfgang Rack and master's student Chanel Dyer. Wolfgang is a glaciologist at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. During his PhD, Wolfgang discovered the instability of Antarctic outlet glaciers following the Larsen A ice shelf collapse in 1995. Since then, his work has used remote sensing to map ice dynamics and ice thickness in the Antarctic. This tool enables him to study the mass balance of the polar cryosphere, which includes sea ice, ocean and ice shelf interactions, right from his office desk. Schnell also works in Antarctica from space. She is currently researching the detection and monitoring of Weddell seal populations using remote sensing, GIS and deep learning. Chanel is awesome because she's passionate about applying technology to conservation. And seeing as Weddell seals are one of the focal species for the Ross Sea Region Marine Protected Area, the largest high seas MPA in the world, her research is pretty important. In this episode, we will delve into how researchers can work in Antarctica from satellites in space, what ground truthing their data entails, and why two very different fields of science, cryosphere and conservation, are so connected. Enjoy this informative discussion from a field of research that's making a real breakthrough for marine conservation. So I'll kickstart with our first question, which is how can researchers work in Antarctica but from space? That is a great question, because um, why do we need space research in Antarctica? Because of the sheer the size of the Antarctic continent. We want to know more about an environment where it is terribly difficult to do ground measurements. And that is sometimes still surprising today because we kind of think we can go to all the places in the world, but there are still places places with very harsh conditions where we have constraints in terms of logistics and in just traveling and in getting there and to do ground measurements and then we rely on remote sensing measurements. I think like what Wolfgang said, I mean, you, you've got the sheer size of it. And like you said, you've got logistics issues, there's monetary issues. It's not always, um, you know, half the time Antarctica is in complete darkness. And we have all these different spheres, the biosphere, the atmosphere, uh, cryosphere, which is Wolfgang's game, which can all be studied on these massive, massive scales. And that's what I think remote sensing allows us to kind of tap into because it's all very well and good that you have one person or a group of people walking around a small area, but if we're wanting to study this on a, on a much larger scale, you know, you don't just want to see one tiny little iceberg. If we're wanting to see what the whole western side of Antarctica is doing, we can't really just traverse up and down the coastline um, and satellites and stuff allow us to, to get into that realm. Um, you, you made a very good point. Chanel, because you no, know, you said six months darkness. I mean, that's the main restriction. One of the main restrictions <laughs> what we really have. So we cannot go during the polar night. We cannot go to Antarctica. It's simply too cold. Um, so that is that is not possible. But I think we always need to keep in mind that we cannot 
observe everything uh, with remote sensing. Um, so it's an indirect measurement. We are looking at the environment from a large distance, distance from space, and the ground measurement is still important. So we need these point measurements to validate the satellite measurement. And also as a reference, if you want to um, extend point measurements to a larger area, we need the satellites, but at the same time, we need some kind of ground validation and ground information, and we call it ground truthing. So that is very important to keep in mind. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get to work in Antarctica to ground truth your data, which you can gather and work on throughout the entire year. So your season is basically not as restricted as other Antarctic researchers, as I understand it. Uh, yeah, no, that, that, that is another good point because, um, because we are not restricted in our season. We are connecting the best of two worlds. I also like that because um, working with satellite technology, satellite data is fascinating. We just it just widens our horizon. We see more, but yes, we can also connect it with the other world, going to the field and actually really seeing with our own eyes what's happening in that fascinating environment. So that is a fascination, of course, for that kind of research. Mm -hmm. So how does this work? You've got a satellite in space and then all of a sudden you're tapping into this amazing data set and you can see what's going on at ground level. So I know you guys have two different areas of remote sensing, but would you just like to each touch on what you do and how it works? Yeah, well, you do raise a good point. We do have very excuse the pun, polar opposite um, areas of interest. What, what I basically do is focused around using optical sensors. So Wolfgang primarily uses radar. Um, and I'm looking at um, Waddell seals. And this, what I'm doing can extend to other um, wildlife species as well. So we're really, really lucky in terms of some satellites that have kind of increase their resolution to such an extent that we're looking at sort of between 40 and 60 centimeter resolution and we can actually see seals from space. So that's that's super, super cool. Um, and that's allowing us to get into elements of in times where we can't say go down and do um, a population count or there's uh, a colony that we maybe thought had died out or had moved or we just weren't able to get there and you can start to see these broad scale changes, particularly in areas where you can't go. Um, so that that's sort of what I look at, which is one quite far end of the remote sensing side. Um, and then, yeah, Wolfgang's got the, the radar ice-based. Yeah, I, I mean, we are looking uh, into the environment with different eyes using satellite sensors and before I went uh, to Antarctica for the first time, my reality of Antarctica was kind of the way how a satellite would see it. And in that case, radar. Radar is a great techno uh, technology because it can look through clouds, which is important for Antarctica because it is often quite cloudy 
Also, we can use it day and night. So pretty much uh, during the dark season, six months without sunlight, we can also use radar technology and there are high resolution radar images. But it's a different way to look at the surface. It's not a true color image, how we are used to digital imagery from our smartphones. Uh, we are looking at reflected radar energy and that looks different to a normal uh, true color digital image. But it is fascinating because we see the environment with different eyes. We can see a little bit under the surface. So we see normally things what probably someone would not see uh, with our own human eyes. But when I went then for the first time to Antarctica after that experience, I was even more surprised how the other reality, our own reality really looks like. So very different to that. So I always, I always see satellite sensing as an additional information. It's, it's widening our horizon. We see more. We, we are very restrict, our eyes are very restricted in the ways how we see things, um, either because we are not able to go to these places or we are restricted because we can only see things with, in true colors. And that is what remote sensing instruments help to extend that, that reality. That's really I think, fascinating. I think, yeah, I think Wolfgang touches on a really good point there because it's one thing to look at, say, you know, we can see things at a really low level. So um, seals right in front of us, we can see that from the sky and also things as huge as the whole continent. But you're looking beyond what, even if it's standing we're standing right in front of something. Um, satellites and various other uh, remote sensing platforms are al allow us to look beyond those. So whether it's infrared, um, so looking at thermal readings from things that we, you know, if we're just staring at it as humans, we're not able to get that information. So it, it opens up a spatial um, element, but also an area that is just beyond, I guess, humans' um, natural limitation, I would say, from, from our own eyes. So that's really cool as well. And then that leads into things like atmospheric readings, um, climate type things that you can all then add together and go, oh, look, we were getting these temperatures and this was getting warmer and then ice started melting and those kind of things. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, this definitely sounds like it's a, a really useful tool and holds a lot of value, this type of research. So these satellites, they have different sensors and data products which enable you guys to do this kind of research, is that right? Uh, that, that is correct. So normally, so these satellites are polar orbiting satellites, how we call it. So that is very different to geostationary uh, satellite orbits. So Geostationary satellites would mean that these satellites would hover, hover uh, above the equator, but polar orbiting satellites kind of are in a very low orbit, and low orbit in that case means about 500 kilometers above the Earth's surface, but revisiting uh, the poles about every 100 minutes or so. So we have a very good coverage in a very high resolution. And these sensors are equipped 
with a variety, so these satellites are equipped with a variety of sensors. And normally what happens is that those satellites carry only very specific instruments for a specific purpose. Uh, so either a high resolution camera, optical instrument, or they would carry a radar sensor, or they would carry something to measure the surface elevation, to measure the change of the ice and things like that. So normally these satellites are dedicated to very specific projects and for, for very specific re, uh, reasons. And Chanel already mentioned very high resolution sensors, so now sub-meter, so uh, half a meter accuracy, which normally would cover only relatively relatively small areas, but there are also other sensors which cover large areas, but they have lower resolution. So probably they would have 250 meter resolution or so. And so how have these developed over time? Like in the last decade or two decades or so, how have you seen satellites and sensors improve in their accuracy um, in spatial and temporal aspect? I'll leave that up to Wolfgang because he's probably seen a lot more of the uh, development. Uh, Chanel, uh, no, we both, and Chanel worked with, with uh, many of this, of, of this data, but there was, of course, a lot of development. Uh, if you think about that, maybe in the 1990s, so 20, 25 years ago, uh, high resolution sensors had a spatial resolution of let's say 30 meters and that was then quickly quickly developing into sensors with resolution in submeter accuracy so that was uh, that was a very important development then uh, there was a very uh, quick development in the radar sensors i've mentioned so if you think about um, you now in the 1990s there were probably a couple of satellites at the moment, uh, it's probably five, six, or seven of that kind of satellites who can actually acquire uh, that kind of data. So I think what really has changed is the number of satellites, which means what we call the temporal resolution has significantly improved. So how often can we visit or can we map uh, certain areas? and also what we call the spatial resolution has significantly improved. So what's the, what's the resolution of one pixel or one picture element in, in our image? So I think it's a, it's, a tremendous, it's a tremendous progress. And in addition to that, what really made a difference is that maybe 20 years or 50, even 15 years ago, um, it was almost um, that, this, that the data were only used by science and it needed very specific science projects to get access to data or to buy this data. But today, the access to this data is in many occasions free. So pretty much everyone who wants to, who has, who, who wants to work with remote sensing data can go online and can download data, can download the tools and can start working with the data. So that is probably also, that's probably the biggest difference. So it's become more widely used and I guess widely accessible. 
Absolutely, absolutely widely accessible, but that's not only for polar research, of course. I mean, that's for no, for any kind of research related to remote sensing. It's much, much easier to do that today compared to even 10 years ago. Right. So we touched on before briefly why ground truthing your data is so important. So what actually is ground truthing by definition? And when have you guys gone down to the ice to ground truth your data and work in the field? So ground truthing is, yeah, I think he, he touched on it before. It's essentially in-person um, basically validating the things that the satellites or the, the other sensors are telling us and whether or not it's true um, or what degree of error there is, that kind of thing. Um, instead of just, you know, taking this, oh, satellite image says X, that must be what's going on um, because there are, there are so many other variables that go on, particularly in Antarctica, where all of the different spheres are quite interconnected. So, for example, if if I just looked at a satellite image and there were no seals there, it, it could be for any huge number of reasons. Um, it could be that there's a scientist just slightly out of out of the frame yelling at them um, <laughs> to get to to go away. You know, so actually going there and saying, okay, is this what, is this exactly what I'm saying? Uh, is there this rogue scientist or are all the seals in the water? I've also used field cameras um, set up at Scott Base and it's quite cool actually. You get sometimes, um, we have an image where it was taken within a minute, um, so a field camera image taken within a minute of one of the satellite images. So it's, it's quite exciting when you you're seeing these little dots on the satellite image and then you've got this picture of specifically those exact seals um, up close and I'm going, yep, 100%, this is that seal, this is that seal, um, this is a rock, this is a seal hole. So, and, and that's the kind of thing that we can use as validation um, or ground truthing, um, as you put it. I think, Very cool. Yeah, I think we, we, we should never forget that we are doing an indirect measurement, uh, so a measurement from very far away. And so we need a reference measurement uh, to bring uh, that measurement into perspective. And when I said before that, no, there are many more satellites today, but we are still kind of limited. We learned, if we just take, for an example, the Antarctic ice sheet, it's a very, very dynamic environment much more dynamic than we would have imagined maybe 20 years ago. So if we measure ice velocity, say, and we do that by looking at the, at the displacement of features on the ground, which could be crevasses or icebergs, then we do that over a period of time of at least a few days, but changes can happen much more quickly. And then if you are interested in these very fast variations in ice dynamics, then we would put a GPS receiver on the ground and we would continuously measure the ice movement. And that would immediately tell us how representative is actually the, the measurement from the satellite. So it's kind of bridging a gap of intermittent uh, satellite measurements on the one hand. On the other hand, 
as scientists, we all we all we always would like to find an explanation for that what we are actually seeing and and what Chanel said. You know, if we uh, if we see variations, let's say in the numbers of seals, we probably would like to uh, bring that. And that is what Chanel is doing to bring that into perspective to uh, oceanographic measurements. And many of these measurements can only be done on the ground, like measure not the measurement of tides or the tidal wave, for example. I think another cool thing that um, just, which was also being done with satellites, um, is in a similar context to the, the seals, there's also some awesome work being done on looking at penguin colonies. And because penguins are quite a lot smaller than Waddell seals, um, they have to make some deductions um, based on the amount of poop that's on the ground, um, which can actually be seen from satellites. If you um, do some statistics and you work out uh, this much poop equals this many penguins, at some point you have to go down there and say, is the number of penguins you know, that we're seeing, what, what is actually there in front of us? Exactly so it, right. It's that kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's incredibly useful and it's also very exciting. Yes, no, definitely. <laughs> Well, it, it depends, just to add it, depends also on the, on the precision uh, we are interested in. So some of these measurements need to be very precise in order to detect change. And some, for some of, of these measurements, if I just think about ice thickness or sea ice thickness, which is a very challenging measurement, and the instruments which are up there in space um, are kind of at the limit to detect change, then it helps to have a reference measurement on the ground to upgrade kind of these measurements from the satellite. Well, I think it's it's very fascinating that although you guys are both using a very similar tool to do your research, your work is completely different. I mean, Chanel, you're working with uh, like conservation biology and then Wolfgang, you're focusing on ice and and sea ice dynamics. Would you mind going into a little, more little bit more depth into what you're doing right at this moment, Wolfgang? What we are working at the moment on is um, pretty much, we are very much interested in how ice and the ocean interacts. So most of the changes in Antarctica happen at the margin of the continent where the warming ocean is in contact with the floating ice. This is where we think that most of the changes in, in Antarctica are triggered in terms of the overall mass balance of the Antarctic ice sheet, which relates to sea level rise. And we are interested in how the sea ice interacts with the land ice along the coastline. So one of the things we are working at uh, at the moment is actually very much related to validation measurements and that's sea ice thickness. So if you, if you imagine that uh, sea ice is probably in Antarctic, it's probably one to two meters thick. So it's relatively thin to measure by satellite from a distance of about 500 kilometers. And that is a classic example uh, what needs validation on the ground. And validation on the ground means in that case for sea ice, using an aircraft, uh, trying to fly uh, beyond satellite tracks and to compare 
one-to-one -one what does the satellite see and what do we see from the aircraft. And we do that because we would like to upscale that information to a much, much larger area. So if you think about that um, at the, in September, at the end of winter, the Antarctic sea ice is covering maybe 20 million square kilometers. It's a huge area and there is pretty much no measurements about the sea ice thickness. And the result of that is, the consequence of that is that we do not know actually how much sea ice is out there because we know from satellites the area of the sea ice, but we do not really know the thickness. So we cannot multiply the area with the thickness to obtain volume and mass. And that is very important for global ocean circulation. And that is why we are trying almost desperately to measure sea thickness on ground or near the ground using aircrafts to validate that. So that is one of our, of our main, uh, that is a research focus of our research team at the moment. Right, so you're essentially taking these satellite images, working out the thickness of the sea ice, and then you go down to Antarctica and you fly along that exact line that that satellite image was taken and you do the same repeated measurements again, but from an aircraft to validate whether or not your satellite measurements are correct? Yeah, that is, that is correct with uh, the one addition, we try to do it simultaneously as right. much as we can, um, which is difficult to do because uh, the satellite flight path is determined. So there's nothing what we can do about it. If possible, we try to do the measurement on the ground at the same time in the same place, which is often very difficult to do uh, because of weather conditions, because of logistics and so on. So um, it depends on the drift velocity of the sea ice and pack ice is very dynamic, so it can drift very quickly. But sometimes we have been successful in doing that and that's incredibly useful for the reference measurement and for the validation of the sea thickness measurement from the satellite. Fascinating. So how does sea ice thickness vary? Like what, where would you find the deepest sea ice in the Ross Sea region, for example, as opposed to the thinnest? Uh, so no, that is a very good question. So we were surprised when we looked at our measurements. So the, the near coastal sea ice thickness where ice is deforming because of pressure, uh, because of pack ice drift, ice can get incredibly thick. So, and with that, I mean thicknesses of easily like 10 meters or so, uh, which is much, much thicker than what is kind of assumed to be the common thickness of Antarctic sea ice, which is around one meter. So when we had the opportunity to, to measure thickness of sea ice in the coastal zones in Antarctica, we realized that these areas are highly affected what we call dynamic thickening, where pack ice is pushed together. And these are areas where sea ice can get much, much thicker than what we normally would assume from pure freezing. Now, if sea ice would freeze without 
any CIS drift and without um, pack ice kind of pushing together without this thickness, without ridges, then thick thickness in the Western Ross Sea probably would grow up to two meters thickness in the most ideal conditions. But we see ice which is easily 10 times as thick. So um, what we normally would not have expected. And that is important because we need to get the right interpretation of the satellite measurements and that's only possible um, doing that from the ground. So that was what that that was a, a big surprise when we saw that. Yeah, that's really valuable information. So I guess we've addressed the fact that you both have very, very different um, fields of work, but I guess everything in Antarctica is connected. So Chanel, more specifically, what does your research entail? Um, so with the satellite images, there's some awesome work being done on looking at getting essentially a continent-wide census of Woodell seals, um, which is very, very cool. Um, but we also need to understand them on a more localised level as well. Um, so sort of colony and region specific. Um, so for that reason, we are looking at, um, in particular, a colony at Scott Base. Um, and I have some cameras there that are taking images of um, the colony every 10 minutes uh, over a period of a few months. So quick calculations, um, there's three cameras doing that. I end up with roughly about 30,000 images a season. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I have some time on my hands, but not enough time to count all of those. So what no, I'm doing No, no one is, does, you need an army. <laughs> what I'm doing is working with computer science um, and basically looking at a methodology to um, use what's called an object detector. So I train, I take a few images um, from across the season that sort of represent a variety of uh, different, I guess, scenarios. So low light, um, slightly higher light, uh, if there's cloudless days or really cloudy days. Um, and I, I count those, I hand count those. And I use those then to, um, to train uh, the computer algorithm to understand what a seal looks like um, from those images and then essentially process the whole lot of them. And it gives me these beautiful population curves um, from across the whole um, few months, which is really, really helpful to help us see, um, I mean, in an ideal world, the wildlife would behave in this perfectly cyclical rhythm, um, but that's not so much the case, and you get huge hourly, daily, weekly, yearly variations uh, in the numbers. So we can start to see those on a really localised scale. And then once we've got that data, um, we can start to uh, look at potential variables that are also connected to it. So globally, people have posited that things like um, weather, so wind, temperature, um, tides, solar altitude, um, they, they tend to show a fairly close correlation um, with the patterns we're seeing of what else, or not just what else, it was any type of seal, um, hauling in and out of the water. And so when we have that high temporal data, we can see, um, we can start to align them with those other readings and 
possibly derive, you know, which ones of them could be could be related. Um, could be maybe, you know, if the seals are getting cold, are they jumping in the water? That kind of thing. So you're basically trying to train a computer to determine whether or not a pixel is a rock, snow, water, or a seal, for example. And then yes. you're also trying to understand whether or not these seals are following patterns, certain patterns of variation. So someone's going out for lunch or someone's going for a swim, why are they doing that at that time of day, at that temperature yeah. kind of situation? Right. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting because you can see, I mean, this is all dependent on the overall colony numbers, but sometimes they can vary across a day up to a factor of 12. So at one point we were getting maybe around 50 to 100 seals at Scott Base, and then a week later there were about 700. Wow. And, <laughs> That's and, a and huge difference. Started, yeah, so when, when I went to Scott Base, I was it was getting nearing the same time that happened the previous year and I was getting so pumped up, I, I was going to wake up and there were just going to be 700 seals. <laughs> and then there were like 30. Right. And, and, I'm, and so you're starting to see these really insane annual patterns even happening. So, um, and that's quite cool because then, um, as I said earlier, with other um, data that people are looking at, whether it's environmental variables or um, ice, that kind of thing, we can start to go, hey, are, they, are these things happening at the same time? Um, and start to look into that. So that's pretty cool. Well, that is a classic example for a reference measurement, isn't it? Because if you would have one satellite image, you could be completely mistaken in the number of the seals if you count it, if there is such a huge daily fluctuation in the numbers in yeah. seals, what you can only discover with your time-lapse camera, which is counting this node, you use that to count the seals every hour or so. Yeah, and that, that I think shows on a, a smaller scale as well. I mean, I, I talked about biospheric and atmospheric and cryospheric interactions all happening, but I, I think that's the same thing here with like remote sensing, is we can incorporate all these methodologies together and answer so many different questions. So it's not plausible to put field cameras um, at every single seal colony all across Antarctica. Um, but if we can start to understand the patterns, then we can start to look at, okay, if, if the satellite image was taken at this time, uh, we're likely to be seeing an over and underestimation of how many how many seals are actually there. So it's, I see it as this really exciting combination of all of them. Um, but yeah, it's it's a good validation side of things as well, as Walken pointed out. Interesting. So as I, you know, we touched on the fact that you guys have very different fields of work, but you're both working in the field of remote sensing ultimately. How does Wolfgang's work and your work kind of correlate? Um, well, sea ice thickness is, while not my forte, um, I am aware that woodpecker seals do are quite fond of um, ice. So they, I guess you, you do have a correlation here, and while this isn't necessarily specifically what Wolfgang's looking at, um, what our seals do like to be spread out, um, their, their preferences, I guess, to be um, not all blobbed together. And if you've got a large expanse of ice, that's obviously perfect. Um, 
but then if it starts to get too thick, you've got an issue of what else they like to have holes. So they maintain um, diving holes with their teeth. And obviously if you've got 10 meters of ice. Um, it's a lot of gnawing. Not, <laughs> that, that is a, a, a huge amount of gnawing. That's, um, not, that's not user friendly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, Obviously, it's great that there is more ice, um, but then you have biological um, impacts of that. So you can coincide um, changes in ice thickness that you're seeing in the water. And so if, for example, uh, Wolfgang was looking at the thickness outside of um, Scott Base and that alongside oceanographic um, things, at processes, and are we seeing changes, not just in the, in the raw numbers, but also are they preferring areas that are maybe of a certain thickness um, because it allows them to, I guess, like you said, gnaw less. Um, yeah. But they're, they're to a point where it's still thick enough that they can safely lie on there because they are they're they're massive. Hefty. They're, they're <laughs> very hefty. Um, and yeah, so it's finding that, that nice balance and that I think is some pretty exciting research that, again, collaborative, um, that can be really, really interdisciplinary. But I think it also on a larger scale goes to show just how intertwined Antarctic research is at a whole, as a whole. Um, it is very much this sort of overarching, you know, thing where all these interconnected processes are happening. So we might have people individually studying things, but it's very easy for Wolfgang and I to sit down and see correlations um, and cause yeah. and effect things happening between those. And then likewise, he could do the same with um, atmospheric scientists. And then I'm looking at potential fallout drivers. So yeah. It's all it's intertwined. Of, it's this really beautiful, um, I think, interconnection of things yeah. that are going on. And I guess like each year, sea ice thickness, for example, would vary. So where, I mean, Wolfgang, you could probably expand on this, but where you saw 10 metres of ice one year, for example, that doesn't necessarily mean the following year you're going to see the same level of thickness, I assume. So I guess that could also help you with your predictions of where colonies might be, if colonies are going to move from year to year. Yeah, I think, I mean, that are the things which, uh, what we really would like to know, because we have only very few measurements, but this is what we kind of assume, because the system is so dynamic. But I guess Antarctic is a very good example of an Earth system where we can see how things are interconnected and everything is connected with, with everything. And the beautiful thing with, with sea ice is that it touches on so many disciplines. It touches on the atmospheric sciences, on oceanography, on biology, on glaciology. So sea ice is always kind of in the focal point of these disciplines if it comes, when it comes to Antarctica. And um, so no, in, the, in terms of biology, there, there are or many other disciplines, but there are still so many unknowns. And especially if you, if you would think about the importance of sea ice and sea ice cover and sea ice thickness for, let's say, phytoplankton or phytoplankton blooms, or how the impact is on the food chain. 
which in the one way or the other would then impact also on the megafauna, on seals, on whales, and so on. So I think there is still so much to discover, but we probably still do not fully capture at the moment where I think you no know, phytoplankton is one of the things which, which is a phenomenon, what can be observed from space covering so large areas which would not be easily be observed, let's say from a ship or from an aircraft, which is so important for uh, biological life in, in Antarctica. So I think there are still so many things to discover here. And sea ice is one, is an environment which I think is actually at the focal point of, of that research and of these disciplines. Definitely, definitely. I mean, sea ice is critical to, I guess, every animal or every organism in the Antarctic food web, like you say, from phytoplankton to seals, whether it be substrate for under ice algae or substrate for a seal to have a nap on. If you just think about you know, sea ice is acting as this giant mirror uh, for incoming solar radiation, and if sea ice is there, that incoming solar radiation is reflected back to space, uh, which is called the ice albedo feedback loop, which is one of the most important feedback loops in the Earth system. Meaning that you know, if sea ice would disappear from the dark ocean, would absorb that incoming light and water would warm up more. And as a consequence of that, there would be less sea ice. So that's that classic example of a, of a positive feedback loop, which is actually quite negative yeah. for, uh, for the climate system. Um, and at the center of what we call the polar amplification during times of global warming, the warming in polar areas because of that feedback loop, will be two, three, four times as high as on the global average. And also again, sea ice is at the center of that research question, so which is fascinating. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And I think that was just touching back to those positive feedback loops. That was something I really took a while to get my head around was that, you know, positive feedback loops, they aren't a good thing. <laughs> And it's really interesting to understand um, the process and how these flow on effects actually um, accelerate, especially under future climate change scenarios. That, that is one of the interesting questions, of course, uh, because polar amplification is in full swing in the northern hemisphere. We see that in the Arctic, a dramatic decrease of the sea ice area, dramatic increase in temperature. We do not see that yet in the southern hemisphere, but we know from paleo records that kind of the Antarctic, because it's so big, it has this huge heat capacity, is kind of always lagging a little bit behind. Mm -hmm. And you know, for us in research, of course, and also in remote sensing research, we would like to know how, much, how long is that, uh, so what's the time lag? So when, when do we actually really, when will we see climate change kicking in, in Antarctica? And I think that is where uh, remote sensing really plays a very important role. Exactly, it sounds like a very critical tool. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to learn and listen. 
More information about the episode and guest can be found in the show notes for those interested. And please leave a review if you've enjoyed tuning in. Subscribe to Antarctica Unfrozen wherever you listen to keep up to date on new guests, topics and ideas of the icy environmental kind. This season was made possible thanks to Pride Conservation, a boutique social enterprise from Aotearoa, New Zealand, on a mission to contribute to the conservation movement both here at home and globally. For more information and to help be part of the movement, check out www.prideconservation.co.nz. That's it for now. I'm Sinead Monty. And I'm Harry Seeger. And, and until, until next time, time stay cool. Stay cool.